If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Just like an old time movie about a ghost from a wishing well in a castle dark or a fortress strong with chains around my feet. Good afternoon. It's Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, I'm lucky to have Miles Harvey. Uh, welcome, Miles. Thanks, T. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thanks for coming out on the muggy day. Uh, it <laughs> is June, muggy, but lovely. June 25th, muggy day. Um, Miles Harvey is reading this evening um, at Shaman Drum. So it's not too late to put it on your calendar, 7 p.m. Um, Miles will be reading from the book Painter in a Savage Land. The Strange Saga of the First European Artist in North America. Um, Miles is the author of, of The Island of Lost Maps, uh, from, uh, published in 2000. And this is his latest book coming at us in 2008. Um, and so it's great to have you back. Did you read it? Um, uh, well, not back on Living Writers. I'm glad to have you here for the first time. Um, but did you read at Shaman Drum, Miles, when you were for the last tour or uh... last time i was here i read at uh, the university which was great because like you i have an mfa from our wonderful university yes, of michigan 1991 and... on yeah. wikipedia <laughs> yeah <laughs> a long time ago and i had a great class a great group of people working and a lot of people are still doing great stuff uh, william lychak the novelist who's one of my best friends and michael paternity another totally close friend and cammy mcgovern and a guy named Derek Green has a book of short stories coming out. So it's a great group. And are you? So it sounds like you're all still a community of writers, then. Yeah, three or four of us keep in, keep in real close touch, and I, I, that's really been a wonderful, wonderful thing. Are you readers of each other's work? Yeah. In the, in the earlier in the the draft stages, or is it more for um, moral support? Uh, being no, there? we try to. There are um, three or four of us who try to um, really have each other's back. And so we read a lot of stuff. And, you know, these are people I completely trust with my work. Um, and they'll, um, they'll be really hard when they need to be hard, but it's, it's just a great thing to have that community. For instance, with this book, uh, Michael Paternity, um, who is uh, now a great nonfiction writer, won a, a National Magazine Award a few years back and has a, had a book out called Driving Mr. Albert with the draft of this oh, book. Oh, that's a good, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, um, it, that was a book about um, driving around with a Dr. Harvey, no relation, and uh, who was um, Einstein's pathologist and stole, actually, true story, stole Einstein's brain. And Mike and Dr. Harvey took a cross-country trip with the brain in a Tupperware jar in the back of the car and vi visited William S. Burroughs. And it was really, it was really wild. So anyway, but like with this book, Mike, uh, was uh, read a draft and said, uh, cut the first 55 pages. And he was exactly right. Really? Yeah, so it's great. Was um, in the first 55 pages, did you have, um, was the first person narrator present? And is that, because I, I was interested to see that it, 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 the eye doesn't seem to really pop up until chapter 18, which is quite a ways down the road. Well, I I, I, I don't know. I hope I'm right about that. I don't, I don't know. Uh, right. I, I started in first person in the introduction and there are little bits of first person person throughout. It's sort of um, just to keep um, a sort of a sense of mystery about the book. And um, so I, the use of the first person is yeah. to keep a sense. How could yeah. you say well, more about that? Yeah, I think sometimes in um, narrative nonfiction, I mean, I, I don't always believe in using the first person. In, in Island of Lost Maps, I was criticized for using it um, too much sometimes. But, I, you know, I, I think in this book, I wanted to, I think the the I voice, the first person voice, sometimes serves as a surrogate for the reader sometimes. Because um, the reader can put themselves in right. with the, the eye then. Right. I think the reader um, bonds with the eye and starts seeing through that first person voice. So I think it's a really intimate voice. And I wanted to um, have a sense of a quest a little bit. Um, it, it, I didn't play it up too much. And then in the end, it, there's definitely the first person. So it's, it's, it's present very lightly throughout the book. Okay. Well, I'm sorry that I was saying, well, it didn't come. <laughs> I know it was in the introduction and then it, it seems like it's so, so much of the, where it almost feels like this, the straight on 
history of it. And mm-hmm. so then I, but, but it's so noticeable when it comes in at chapter 18, mm-hmm. right. With the, um, so I, before we go any further, let me read the back just to give everyone, cause we're going to talk a little bit about your life miles, of course, <laughs> but let me start off with what's in, in the back on the, on the, um, dust jacket flap, uh, in the back of your book painter in a savage land let's see miles harvey is the author of the island of lost maps a true story of cartographic crime a national and international bestseller that was named one of the top 10 books of 2000 by usa today and the chicago sun times the recipient of a 2004 2005 illinois arts council award for prose and a 2007 2008 knight wallace fellowship at the university of michigan he teaches well, he has been teaching at Northwestern University in Chicago, but you've just you've got you've accepted an appointment at the University of New Orleans, Miles. Yeah, that? I just did yeah. recently. So Congratulations! I'm very Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I had a wonderful year here too. I've been in Ann Arbor for the last year on something called a Knight Wallace Fellowship. Yes, for journal. That's the journalism fellowship, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and yes. it's just an extraordinary thing. I was here with, oh, I don't know, 18 journalists from around the world, wonderful people, and it was just such an enriching experience. When you, um, when I noticed in, in your, your biography, it mentions that you, you worked at, for Outside Magazine and UPI, and, and I was wondering, did that happen before you came here for the MFA? Was this some part of your, your background, was more journalism, and then you came here? Or did that happen afterwards as a way to make a living? Uh, or a little bit of both. I started um, with a journalism degree from the University of Illinois and then worked in journalism for a long time um, at um, United Press International and then later at the Alternative Newsweekly in these times. Um, and I worked there for many years. And then... Um, uh, came here and got my MFA in fiction writing, which was a wonderful experience um, working with um, Nick Delbanco and Charles Baxter was here when I was here, just so wonderful. So it was just a great experience and coming back here was, um, I really loved it. It's a great university environment here. And while you were here on the fellowship, did you you get a chance to... um did you go to a lot of readings as well, or did they keep you pretty busy over in the, the journalism uh, section? No, I think the great thing about these fellowships is you can do whatever you want to. So, uh, you know, um, yeah, I went to a lot of uh, different classes and uh, readings and um, took a poetry class, T. Oh, who? Not who a, was? Uh, with Larry Goldstein, which <laughs> oh, was great. Okay, it was Larry, a modern, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Great, a modern poetry class, and it was wonderful. Um, and... Um, so, I've taken that class, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I really enjoyed that. So it's basically a year to do whatever um, you think you need to do to sort of um, go to the next place in your career. And, and so, is it, so it's, is it in support of your current project then? It was in support of a project that I was working on while I was here. That I'm not, I'm not sure if it's going to be a book or not, but it was interesting to research. And, uh, and also just having a year to sort of... Um, be back in a university environment, taking classes, sitting in on classes. And we did some travel. We went to Argentina and Turkey. And it was just amazing. And was that for fun or was that also part of the... Well, it was part of the, the fellowship. Research. Yeah, oh, okay. it's part of the fellowship. And it, they're basically fact-finding junkets, you know. And, but um, very serious, uh, very serious fun, but they really work you hard. And, um, you know, we were going someday, one day we were up, I think, at 3 a.m. and out. Um, interviewing people and it's all off the record stuff so people tend to speak to you Um, and so we just had a great time and if it's off the record that means like you can use it when you're sort of writing reflectively but not because that's interesting that you say that on it's off the record just as a given because I thought that was sort of something that often was worked out on the at the moment when you're speaking with someone. Right. Well, with, with the, the fellowship, we have a lot of speakers come in, and we, we see a lot of speakers when we travel. And, um, you know, Bill Cosby... Oh, so as a group? Yeah. To, okay. As, so Bill Cosby, for instance, flew in t- uh, to, um, to meet with us. And, you know, it's sort of... I mean, the idea is this is not for... Um, to be used for anything. It's it, it's just to get people talking and to have an exchange between journalists and people who are normally um, subjects of journalists and sometimes in an antagonistic or uh, relationship. But this is more like uh, give and take. And so it's very interesting. Are you guys ever on the hot spot then? 
like how is it that the give and take part? Like, yeah, actually, when when Bill Cosby came in, um, mostly what he wanted to do is um, you know, criticize journalists. That's mostly what he seemed to be here for. Oh, <laughs> was he giving like a talk or was it sort of a comedy routine about? Well, um, <laughs> or maybe it's not something pleasant was, that you want to talk I, about on the radio. I would right say now. it was something uh, somewhere between a, I would say it would be a rant. That is how I describe it. Oh, great. It. Yeah. So he was not happy with journalists when he came. Ostensibly, he was here to talk about his um, controversial book about um, race in America and um, which I think is a really interesting book, but he mo- mostly what he wanted to do is um, sort of complain about journalists. So, and you know, some of us were in the mood and others weren't. Right. right. So it was a, it was an, you know an interesting exchange. We had more interesting exchanges, frankly, than than that one. So, right. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you know, we had writers, and it was really a great time. Oh yeah, it sounds like something where you're just your mind would be growing exponentially, probably. Yeah, it's and, like it's like you know grad school without the focus in. Sometimes, in, you know, the focus of a graduate school is great, but without this sort of emphasis on grades and, you know, there's... You it's can, a different kind of learning, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah. then the mind can kind of uh, have it marinating in a way that it can't be sometimes when you have to look for what you're exactly trying to find out of what someone's saying. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And there are so many great um, professors in this school um i took in the fall i took this class with this amazing guy named pascal gross that's a great name he's a yeah he's an amazing guy he's a a german um guy who spends his falls in ann arbor teaching intellectual history and then the rest of the year he's a neurologist in berlin and just one of the smartest (laughs) most amazing guys i've ever met in my life wow yeah no he was he was uh, that was a really that was one of those classes it was an undergraduate class and he said do you really want to take an undergraduate class and I said no I want to take your undergraduate class and uh, it was just I found it mind-blowing I thought it was fantastic wow yeah well intellectual history your bag yeah, sort of. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I wouldn't give myself that much. But but you're also but you're also writing fiction as well, and that's what you came here for. I do still write a little bit of fiction. So, um, so is this like is this the bread and butter, or is this the passion? Because you say you've a you, fascination with maps led you to the 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 first book, yeah, and then also here, like again, we revisit Florida. Well, I think it's both. You know, I mean, it is the bread and butter. Um, as you know, as a poet, T, you know, there's sort of a hierarchy of pay in the uh, in the world of books, and nonfiction tends to pay better than fiction, which tends to pay better than poetry. <laughs> I'm sorry, T, but um, but salt um, in the wound. And I do have a family, and um, so, I, but um, and I'm but I'm and you know, and nonfiction is what I've done, and I love it as a form. And uh, um, my couple of years in Michigan studying fiction. Strangely enough, really affected my nonfiction writing and really um, opened me up to whole new ideas about storytelling. And so, um, and now I teach what's called creative nonfiction, and um, um, which is a sort of arbitrary category, but um, but um, it's all about you know different kinds of storytelling. And and what are those? Are there any sort of huge elements of storytelling that you noticed yourself working in right away when you went back to these projects, the nonfiction projects? Well, I certainly wasn't. I mean, I, I'm not sure I had been for a long time interested in sort of what they call in journalism the inverted pyramid anyway, which is sort of who, what, where, when and why and sort of going from there. Um, there, there are all sorts of. And, and But when I came out of here, there were just many different approaches that I hadn't thought about that I realized could be applied to nonfiction writing. And just in terms of the the stuff that fiction writers use all the time, uh, point of view, you know, like, okay, do I have to tell this story in third person? What if I told it in first person? What if I told it in second person? In Island of Lost Maps, there's an entire chapter in second person. So, um, I, you know, I think that um, that my time here at Michigan was really great for you know, I mean, I, I still write a little bit of fiction and get it published, and I love writing fiction. In, in the MQR as well, right? In the Michigan Quarterly Review. Yeah, yeah, Quarterly I had Review a piece in the Michigan yeah. Quarterly Review, yeah, and a piece not too long ago, well, a few years ago in Plowshares, and I've got a piece out floating around now. And, you know, I mean, but, and I would love to, you know, publish more fiction, but right now, 
um, this is sort of what I do, and I love it. So, Well, it's good that you're doing it. It's good. It's yeah. good. We're going to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Living Writers today. Miles Harvey with his book, Painter in a Savage Land. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Where the road is dark And the seed is sown Where the gun is cocked As the bullets cold Where the miles are marked In the blood and the gold I'll meet you farther on Up the road Got on my dead man's suit And my smiling skull ring My lucky graveyard boots And a song to sing I got a song to sing It keeps me out of the cold And I'll meet you further on Up the road Further on up the road Further on up the road Where the way is dark And the night is cold One sunny morning We'll rise, I know And I'll meet you further on Up the road Welcome back. If you're just tuning in um, today on Living Writers, Miles Harvey and his latest book, um, just out with Random House, Painter in a Savage Land, the strange saga of the first European artist in North America. Um, well, having just read its title and subtitle, um, would this be a good time, Miles, to to read a couple of minutes from the book? Sure. So, yeah, I'd be glad to. This will be a sample because folks can come to Shaman Drum tonight at 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. and hear you live and see you and ask you questions afterwards. Yeah. So so this book is about this guy named Jacques Lemoine de Morgue, who um, came to what is now Jacksonville, Florida. Um, he was an artist, uh, a French artist, a French Protestant artist. And um, the, what the French were doing then was really cutting edge because um, no one had sort of figured out before then that it might be interesting to go and try to record natives of different places, including the, the Americas, um, uh, as they were in their own lands. And the French, um, for very selfish reasons, but nonetheless, <laughs> decided to start sending out artists all over the world and have them bring back a, a visual uh, record. And Le Mans' time in Florida was especially interesting, T, because um, before he got there, there had never been a permanent European presence in what's now the United States. Mm-hmm. And after he left... Um, there uh, was a permanent European presence ever since then. And so... Um, this real turning point. Yeah, shift, it really, it really yeah. is a real turning point. 1564. 1564, 1565. So I'll just read a quick section about his art. Um, okay. He did not know it, but he was painting a world of ghosts, warriors soon to be slaughtered or enslaved, children forced to abandon their native dress, tongue, and traditions, even their own names, strong, beautiful bodies wasted by disease, villages raised, sacred rites forgotten, a people obliterated. American history is sadly full of such genocides. What made this one different was that a witness was there to record the doomed culture before it disappeared. Engravings of Le Mans' work, now elevated to Iconic status through repeated use in books and exhibits have in effect become our collective memory of that long vanished time and place. 
But what a flawed memory it is, addled by inconsistencies and inaccuracies, delusions and dreams. Lemoine managed to cram a vast pageantry of native life into those few dozen pictures. Warriors taking scalps, young men practicing sports, widows grieving their dead husbands, cooks curing deer, snake, alligator, and other meats on a barbecue, transvestites caring for the sick, a weeping mother turning her newborn son over to executioners for ritual sacrifice, a couple and their children out on a family picnic. Yet despite their stunning breadth and strange beauty, those images, works of unclear authorship based on vanished paintings of a vanished people, defy simple understanding. In what's, it's what makes them so at once so maddening and so seductive. Thank you, Miles. Sure. And so for you, when you came across these, um, like the engravings, the idea, well, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to this project? Was it maddening and seductive to you? Yeah, it was. So um, I, after Island of Lost Maps came out, I was at a, a book, on a book tour um, in Jacksonville, Florida. There was a uh, sort of a book festival for the public library. You can't get away from Florida, too. It's like keeps sucking you back in. You think it. And now you're moving closer to it with New Orleans. Well, the third th- book, All About Florida by Miles. Yeah, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to wind up living there somehow. But um, but so at any rate, um, this wonderful old, uh, he wasn't that old, but retired oh. guy, Mark Allen, was driving me around. And um, he said, hey, I, I want to take you out to, uh, to uh, Fort Caroline as if I would know what that was. And I was sort of like, it had been a long day. <laughs> and it was 20 when I left Chicago, and it was 80 in Florida, and there was a wonderful pool waiting me at home. And I said, yeah, all right, let's go to Fort Caroline. And when I got there, I realized something amazing. that um, I realized what it was, that it was this um, memorial to this lost sort of colony from 1564-65. And by coincidence... This guy, Jacques Lemoine de Morgue, had done this map, which was the um, used as the cover and end papers of Island of Lost Maps. So I pulled into the parking lot and was oh, looking at his map. And, and so, you know, I just got more and more interested. And, I mean, he's just a fascinating figure. You know, he, he painted um, all these people, and we just don't know what of his original survive. Um, what That's so interesting, isn't it? That it's, yeah. so it's a mythology about this painter as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's right. So you're trying to sort through many different levels of reality when you're dealing with this stuff. So um, what has survived are his engravings. Um, but the guy who did the engravings, a very famous engraver and book compiler named uh, Theodore, Theodore Debris, um, was, you know, he was a a popularizer, you know, and so he changed a lot of stuff. And so you just don't know what he changed and what he didn't. That is terrible then, because because there's a part where you talk about the noble savages as well. Like, mm-hmm. and so what part of that um, was or, original, like that the the hopes or like the, like this idea of the, the romance of this or what part was then what the popularizers virgin right when were i wonder do you do you know when the engravings were made is that something yeah they came out in 1591 um and um you know they were uh, part of uh, debris famous america series they were the second book in that series and um it's just not clear they were they were clearly based on um paintings that had been commissioned by sir walter raleigh Mm. um Lamont later in life worked in England for Raleigh. He's sort of a zealot-like figure. He worked for a lot of people, and including my research links him in an interesting way to Mary, Queen of Scots. But um, but he was working in England for Walter Raleigh, and there is a record that he supplied Raleigh with these paintings. Raleigh was trying to set up his Virginia colony, and he wanted you know experts. He basically gathered this think tank, and Lamont was one of the people he brought in to do these paintings. Now it's not clear whether these paintings. Um, were made before this or at that time, so we don't know what memory plays. Mm. And it, we don't know if Lamont got any of his original um, sketches and paintings out of Florida. The French colony was brutally um, surprise attacked, and um, everyone but a few people, including Lamont, were slaughtered 
by the Spanish who uh, claimed that land as their own. Um, it did not help the French that they were a group of Protestants um, during the um, time, the heyday of the Spanish Inquisition. Right. So, right. And so the, the, the Spanish were not... Um, we're not uh, thinking too kindly of they, these people. They didn't exactly ask them politely to leave. No, that wasn't the intent. It was just to wipe, well, because of the Corsairs, like that part of the history, right? Yeah, that's right. And the, the Spanish saw this uh, Le Mans colony as basically a pirate colony, and not without reason. Um because they did have an envoy that was that that left a, a mutiny that left to go down. So there were right. pieces that were actual right, pirates. Right. Uh, so, some of the some of the French colonists broke away, um, had a mutiny, and did go as pirates. And in fact, a bigger threat to the Spanish was that they had to take their treasure fleet with all the gold and silver from Mexico and especially South America, and um, sail it up because of the way they they got home past. Um, Florida there and a and, narrow stri- yeah the, there, yeah right on the straits there and they they had so they they were in a position where they just couldn't have a French pirate colony <laughs> there but um, they they certainly weren't nice about the way they ended it most of the most of the people in this colony were just brutally brutally slaughtered decapitated etc. It's it's interesting because it's 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 interesting how you set up a chapter with the the. The prisoners. So, so you have a setup of um, uh, the names are escaping me right now. But earlier on, um, well, anyway, it's just it seems like you you start setting up some tension in the oh, book. Right. So right. Oh, I know what you're talking see. about. Yeah, I'm sorry yeah, that yeah. I don't have that. Yeah, no, the, there about. was a race to Florida to to save this colony. The the French, uh, a great um, navigator named Ribot, uh was. Um, trying to get there to reinforce the colony, and the Spanish were trying to get there to wipe out the colony. <laughs> so there was quite a race down there. And, and both, both, um, and that was Menendez, was the, yeah, the, the Spanish? Yeah, Pedro Menendez. And was, how interesting that you said, I mean, you, like, you set up that, because the way you do it, it seems almost like an artistic move. Well, of course, both of my main characters are imprisoned at the same time and, you know, suffering, you know, and trapped there while they're waiting kind of to to leave and to go to this colony. Right. But so, and are those things that you uncovered miles, like because you're following these different trails back. And so you found that they both happened to be in prison at the same time because you knew that they met at this later juncture at, at the, or yeah, I, I wouldn't, you know, claim I, I, I don't, my historical discoveries here are, are fairly limited. I mean, what I think is unique about this book is that this story of this French colony really hasn't been told that much, partly because all three of the parties involved were the losers in history, right? So the Spanish, the French, and especially the Timucuan Indians, who were the dominant people in this part of the world uh, when the French arrived, and, and literally were... Hundreds of thousands of people, yeah, you said. Right, right. And, and Right, and literally were extinct within a very short time, um, thanks to us Europeans. Um, and... It, um, so that there was all these people sort of were forgotten people in American history. And, um, you know, this even this town, Jacksonville, you know, is named after one of the great, you know, sort of nationalist icons in American history, Andrew Jackson. There's this, so there's a sense of starting over. And, and this story was... Um, so this story is, I mean, it's been around. But you're, 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 you're giving it to us as a story. Yeah. That and seems to be your intention. And it's never been told through. I thought the interesting figure in this story was Lemoine. Because I thought, first of all, he left a, a very interesting journal, a very difficult to decipher journal. But also all these images, again, difficult to decipher. But he's also just sort of this... Um, this really interesting way of, of filtering this whole story because in a way he represents the French venture down there. What made the French essentially different in their approach to the Indians than the Spanish, and of course they blew it, and was that they um, cared enough about getting along and forming alliances with the Indians, that they wanted to study the Indians. Mm-hmm. And so Lamont is not only sort of like an early version. I mean, he just like stands on the edge of modernism of today's documentary photographers, filmmakers, videographers, but also anthropologists and ethnologists. I mean, it's this whole 
very modern way of seeing other peoples that he embodies. That doesn't mean he personally, you know, was this very broad-minded, forward-thinking person. I have no idea. In fact, uh, he was pretty devout Calvinist by all. Well, in some ways, the Calvinists were very forward-looking people, too. But, at the time. Yeah, yes. at the time. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, let's take a short break, Miles. We'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Miles Harvey and his latest, Painter in a Savage Land. We'll be right back. At the depot But my tears Fell like the rain When I saw them place That long white casket In the baggage coach Of the evening train The baby's eyes are red from weeping its little heart is filled with pain oh daddy it cried they're taking mama away from us on the evening train Hi, you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Miles Harvey. Um, We're talking about his book, Painter in a Savage Land, Um, The Strange Saga. (laughs) I love that. Um, So... We're, we're, there's so many things that we can we can talk about. I wanted to to just ask you briefly, like, um, is because literally the the island of lost maps that was um, about Floridian Gilbert Bland, mm-hmm. which is a great name. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't. I, I want to read the island of lost maps. I haven't read it yet, but it's so exciting because it's like a map stealer. So that's a parallel with your friend and Albert Einstein's brain. Like then you wrote about this guy who was also like stealing maps. Um, is it at all related to like the Gilbert's uh, bar and house of refuge on Hutchinson Island? Is there any, cause that's something. So. No. Okay. Cause I was like, maybe that guy was like related to that sort of pirate or captain. Cause it's all to do with like, the, the sunken treasure boats around Florida. Oh, I don't know. You know, probably later. These guys were so early um, that um, I don't, yeah, uh, probably later. Oh, but pirates. this guy, the Gilbert Bland? Oh, oh, Gilbert Bland. Bland. Yes, no, was he? He was just a mild-mannered um, for, <laughs> former con man and, and computer programmer who... Um, who got the idea that um, he could make a lot of money by going around the country and, uh, in fact, in Canada as well, stealing old maps out of libraries and selling them to other map dealers. I mean, that's it is huge because have you been to our, our the University of Michigan's oh, the map? Clements? Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and, or, and the map or library, actually, too. Actually, the map library yeah. in Hatcher. That's, yeah, that's what no. I was thinking of. I was just talking to the map yeah. librarian this morning, in fact. Yeah, no, it's wonderful. Carl? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's great, yeah. So, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, I mean, th- that book and this book are related in one way in that, um, I mean, not only was Lamont a very bad but very um, important map maker who only made one map, but a bunch of people copied it. Like, um, it's called a base map, so it was, like, sort of copied for years and years, but it was oh. completely Like uh, the game wrong. Telephone? or <laughs> It's a little bit like that, you know, and... and um, but it was wrong to begin with, is what you were just going to say, Well, I mean, say, a lot right? of maps in that era were wrong to begin with. This is sort of fabulously wrong to begin with. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> Might as well do it fabulously. You know, if you look at the top of the map, there's this um, 
inland sea uh, that, um, you know, the, the European dream, and it was sort of the American dream for a long time, was that there would be some quick, easy way from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Mm. And so if you look at the, the top of this map, there's this massive inland sea that implies that, you know, all you have to mm. do is, you know, go upriver. And, yeah, where and, the Carolinas, maybe just past the Carolinas. Yeah. And, and, and you know, one thing that Lamont really, a, a constant um, reoccurring uh, theme of the French colony was this notion that there was gold just a few um, hundred miles away the, from them. In the mountains. There. Yeah, well, but they thought or the mountains were in yeah. northern Florida. Right. <laughs> so they made and broke a bunch of alliances and got into some um, terrible Indian wars in which um, Lemoine, among others, were injured um, to get to what they were told were these Apalatki uh, mountains. And it, so he has them on his map uh, in Florida. Well, um, of course, he, th- these Indians were the Appalachian Indians now from the Appalachian Peninsula. There were no mountains in the Florida panhandle there. No. <laughs> but interestingly enough, a few bumps, but <laughs> this name stuck around on maps for so many years that we now call the Appalachian, uh, Appalachian Mountains the Appalachians. That's right. Yeah. So that's a little, so another little fun trivia. Yeah. <laughs> With all when you're doing all this research, Miles, like and you're following these different trails, like yeah. are there how do you how do you decide like which trails are the ones that need to be included? And because there's many, like you said, there's either fun facts or there's trails that might be fascinating, but are they included in the final book or well, I, I had of course I had to cut a lot out and well, 55 pages to begin well, yeah, with, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, um, you know, I also love footnotes, so I just I stick a lot in footnotes. It's just a hefty footnote section. But, um, yes. But, um, you know, this story was really complex because there's this great sort of um, swashbuckling Florida narrative with uh, hurricanes and mass murders and Indian wars and mutinies and, uh, you know, uh, a famine. And so, and that is just sort of, you know, that is Indiana Jones stuff, you yes, know. It's sort yeah. of fun to tell. Um, there's a race down back to Florida to save this colony, which the French actually won and then blew it. Um, uh, but um, so that was sort of uh, um, easy to tell and fun to tell. But then talking about the art and working the art into there was tricky. But then it turns out that Lamont has a whole other life as an artist. He was a really, really important early botanical painter, um, by, by which I mean plants and flowers, a natural history painter. And he's amazing. He's one of the really great early botanical painters, and in fact, a groundbreaking one. And um, that stuff I wanted to cover. Um, and I also, there were these gaps in his life, which is related to all this. And one of the gaps I really wanted to try to fill was sort of like, how did this guy get there? There were all these questions. Why him? Why send this flower painter to paint the Native Americans? And one, the one bit of original sort of um, historical research I've provided, and it's not, uh, you know, it's not a smoking gun case, is that I, I think Lemoine... And it's a long story of how I came to this, but wor- was trained in an embroidery workshop where hmm. um, watercolor flower paintings would have been vital that they would use those then as the basis for the embroideries. Yeah, for embroideries. Yeah. And so I found in, um, uh, it's always been said that. Um, Lemoine was from the city of Dieppe, the Norman city of Dieppe, because that's where he was right before he left for the for America. And I th- always thought he might be from a place called Morgue, because he is, after oh, all, right. Jacques Lemoine de Morgue. Yes. And so I found this little hamlet called Morgue. Other researchers hadn't apparently noticed it. Really? Yeah. This I actually found extreme. it on Google. Ah. You know? <laughs> so, but, but then I... I God I, bless Google Maps. No, just kidding. <laughs> I, near Morgue is the city of Chateau d'Anne. And um, it turns out that there was a very important 
um, embroider in Chateau done called Henri Lemoine, which who was one of Mary Queen of Scots embroiders, not only an embroider but a valet de chambre, which was even more important than embroider. Mary Queen of Scots is famous for her embroidery. There are entire books about her embroidery and her embroiderers, and this guy's not mentioned. So, and he's just the right age to be Lemoine's father or uncle, mm. and he would have needed a flower painter, and it would explain a lot of things. One of the things that oh. previous researchers on this have been a little mystified by is Lemoine seemed to have uh, royal access that a painter wouldn't normally have. So there's been some speculation he was a... Because you said it was before their painters were more uh, given that, like as a crafts, like a like lauded as... Yeah, like, it was sort of right, again, you know, cusp. he's right on this cusp between, you know, the Italian, in, in Italy, painters were already becoming superstars. And they were a little <laughs> bit in France, but mostly in Europe at this time. Um, they were just craftsmen, like, and I mean craftsmen, like um, cobblers, you know. I mean, they were not considered... Um, uh, artists. Right. So, yeah. It's such an interesting time then that you've kept. You can tell when you're talking about it, um, you just are so much in that world. Like it's a, it's, you have these very clear pictures, I think, as you're, you're speaking about any part of the project, Miles. It's, yeah, it no, I mean, apparent. I sort of like disappeared into this world for, I mean, it's, you know, I think anyone who writes about history and, you know, I'm not a historian and just because I had to do some sort of serious archival research on this, I just became such a huge fan of real historians and just said, wow, man, this is a really, really serious pursuit. Um, I was so unqualified to do the research in France and luckily there's... I hooked up with a young, brilliant art historian who was a translator and fixer and uh, had Perfect. brilliant ideas and, you know, was great at the research. But even then, you know, I, it was not only a matter of translating, but then transcribing the documents I was finding because um, they're in a script that, you know, you and I couldn't read even if we read French. And so <laughs> right. I had to then send them off to this guy in France to transcribe them. And it was, I mean, so... I was really in over my head, but it was fun being in over my head on this project. Yeah, yeah. And it, you mentioned on, in your website, too, that um, that there that there was like a, almost in a, a, an apologetic way, like that the book came out in 2000, The Island of Lost Maps, but here it is 2008, as if you were sort of surprised yourself that it, oh, it took you so long. with. But it sounds like waiting for like these other people are involved do you have people you know how could it move faster it's not just about sitting and writing it all. you know there's it's that and i'm it. also a slow writer you know oh, okay. i mean that's a, <laughs> that's a bottom line too and i also have young children and um now with two young children i i'm just when i hear of writers getting a lot of work done with young children i'm just sort of amazed and impressed and want to ask them how they do it and <laughs> right. sometimes when I find out how they do it it's basically by ignoring their young children and right, I'm, right. I'm not um, the sort of parent who wants to do that so. well that's, that's a relief if the, if the kids are listening they're like Phew. <laughs> um, also and, and just since we're talking because you do have a website it's um isn't it milesharvey.com? Yes, okay, so the narcissistically named <laughs> www.milesharvey.com. Well, you might as well get that before someone else gets it and that, makes you pay for it. Right? That is the truth. <laughs> but but you say on that uh, on your site, painter in a savage land has been the hardest professional undertaking of my life. So why? It, well, just um, kind of what I was just you know getting. At. I mean, it was just there was so much um, kind of research involved, and also just so much kind of sorting through information and trying to put it in context. And so a real historian of um, the 16th century would know um, the background and They'd all this stuff. They'd be coming to it with an but, arsenal of knowledge. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm coming to it, so I'm starting with, you know, sort of general histories of Calvinism in the 16th century. And, you know, but sort with of, trails to follow, But right? with trails to follow, yeah. And, you know, and, and in some ways I think, you know... Um, uh, that somewhat there are certain advantages to um, a moron like me who's um, <laughs> interested in you know sort of narrative storytelling. I mean, unfortunately, you know, one of the sad things about our culture, I think, it's true in a lot of areas of uh, academia, but the serious his historians have more or less abandoned old-fashioned narrative storytelling yes. to... Connecting um, with a larger community, the, the general yeah, population. Or just telling a tale, you know? Yes. I mean, that's... and I, I mean, I think it ties into a, a larger problem with the lack of public intellectuals in our country. And so mm -hmm. this story would have been, um, 
you know, I would love it if there were historians, at least some historians, who were still writing sort of narrative history um, books that, you know, for a wide audience. But it, it just is not the way that... And I understand it, why we have to specialize our knowledge. But there's, there's something lost when we do that. Um, when you look back at earlier generations of historians, there's just some great writers. And, you know, Barbara Tuckman or, you know, people I'll like that. I'll have to read some of yeah. that. Because yeah. I'm trying to think now, like, surely there must be a couple of people doing that. But, I, yeah, I can't quite think of any. Oh, I think there are still some great, you know, some great historical writers. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to be too critical of that pursuit. I mean, I just think it's a way that academics works these days. We live in a very specialized world. and But it is unfortunate that these sorts of stories are, are left to, you know, basically uh, fascinated amateurs like me. And But then you have a quest and then you have a you have a book to write. Yeah, and in some ways I think I, I, there are some things I notice that experts don't notice. Exactly. Unfortunately, there are also things that you have to really learn a lot to notice the things that experts do notice. So, so that's, you know, that's just, it's just a ton of work. Yeah. Well, anyway, well, let's take a break and we'll be back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, thanks today to Alex Sergey for engineering. Um, we've got Miles Harvey in the studio. His book, Painter in a Savage Land, will be back. I couldn't manage the problems I laid on myself And it just made it worse when I laid them on somebody else So I finally surrendered it all, brought down in despair I cried out for help And I felt a warm comforter there And I came to believe In a power much higher than I I came to believe That I needed help to get by in childlike faith I gave in and gave him a try Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers today, Miles Harvey. Um, so we're talking about his book, Painter in a Savage Land, the strange saga of the first European artist in North America. Um, and Miles will be reading tonight at Shaman Drum uh, at 7 p.m. So you can swing on by and hear, hear a bit and then ask some questions. <laughs> One of my questions would be, how do you pronounce the names? <laughs> Many of the important figures in the, the book. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, it's my question, too. Yeah, that I almost didn't get out of graduate school here because I kept uh, flunking the French exam, which oh, you no, right? <laughs> could use a dictionary on and uh, everyone else thought was so incredibly easy. Yeah. And I and I studied in the summer in France and then came back and flunked it. And so another reason I wasn't really super qualified to do this book. <laughs> But also hopeful for everyone else. Do not be deterred by right. <laughs> by your shaky language by your skills. Utter ignorance. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well. Um. Okay. Well, since we're kind of joking about like, well, uh, uh, perceived weakness, because I I don't think it is at all. Um. But your first book, The Islands of Lost Maps, it was called, you know, quirky and 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 which is positive, mm -hmm. I think. And um. And people noted the variety of tone and the pacing and the subject matter and 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 but then other people like Publishers Weekly and different it seemed like they they were saying things like there's no sense of direction or it's like what did they want you to just shoot a straight arrow and follow only that what and and did it affect the writing of this book Miles I know that's a lot to throw at yeah, you yeah no but. though that's a great question um you know um, that book um, had to be what it was so. Um, I had done a, a magazine story for Outside Magazine. And, In 1997? Uh, that so. sounds about right. And um, it, it, because Outside was very 
hot there, I'm putting this in quotation marks, in the publishing <laughs> industry, I got a lot of calls from editors and agents, um, which is not something, you know, as a writer, T, that, you know, most working writers are too used to, to get all these people calling you. And at first I was said, I'm not going to do a book. The big problem was Gilbert Bland, the subject of the, the, the criminal, the map thief, wouldn't talk to me. I had tried and tried. I'd gone to prison where he was, and I'd staked out his house, and, you know, all, just all the... Crappy, ugly things. You that were his journalists, stalker for a while, yeah, 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 they, right? The journalists do, and um, you, you know. Um, so by the time people really got interested in the book, you know, I said, "Look, um, here's the book I want to write." And what I wanted to write was a meditation on maps, and what I had to write was about my quest for Bland and how sort of mapping this unknown person becomes like mapping an unknown place. And it had to be about that because it mm. was never going to have him, you know, talking his to voice, me. right. And I tried more um, to get a hold of him after I wrote the book. But when I sold the book to Random House, my editor, there was a, a guy named John Carp, who's a great editor. And he, um, I said, you know, John, if don't buy this book if you expect me to get a hold of Bland because I've tried and I've tried. So here's the kind of book I want to write. So, I mean, you know, people either loved that book or they didn't well, love that book. But it was a bestseller, which it I was think a is bestseller. So readers Yeah, and it was, you know, it. and a lot of critics loved it too. I mean, it, it was it was wild because it was like I think as it got a lot of hype when it came out that book that People felt they they had to take a stand on it, oh, one way or the other. <laughs> I'm sure that was, was pleasant to live through. Yeah, then. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know. I was, I was a little mystified by it. It did, you know, toughen my skin a little bit. Um, and it was strange, you know. But it, and, you know, you learn not to put your ego completely into others, others' views. views. Yeah. So, I mean, what I'll say about Island of Lost Maps, there are some parts. There were there was a passage in the book that um, some re, some critics were really didn't like, and it was funny because I would say I would gladly have cut that passage out, um, but it was a very personal passage. Um, it was, but it was like a paragraph, and um, and they just sort of glommed onto it. Or well, something. I think you know people. I, you know, I think some people don't believe in a subjective voice in that sort of writing. They don't want a first-person voice. A lot of the um, the readers who didn't like it were true crime readers because it's had, the, the subtitle was A True oh. Story of Cartographic Crime, who had oh. very clear ideas right. about what true crime a should be. Yes. A genre, this is not fitting into our preconceived note, when I never wanted it to be a genre book. So, I mean, I think that that book was, you know, a great experience, and I, I still get emails from people all over the world about it, and it's wow. so it's really nice. I mean, and I don't know if it was a perfect book. I think it's, you know, it's one of those books you either like it or you don't, and and um, maybe this. Well, book I'm this looking one forward to reading way. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you like? Um, if how do you find a project, and then how do you frame it? Like, what sort of? You no, know, I, I am the wrong person <laughs> to get advice from on that. I mean, I. What I, would you tell our listeners? I would say um, be smarter than Miles Harvey. Uh, you know, I'm not. I'm not. Um, a brilliant at I'm very sort of like I, I like following what interests me and what interests me is not always I'm trying to become um, smarter about I have a writer friend who's um, a very successful nonfiction writer and very good one who um, I have lunch with a few times a year who always says look and he's really supportive but he says you your interests are really wide and really intense you can find the right project within those within those that framework of interest and he's right you know instead of sort of but I tend to like um, tease out strings a lot you know I mean that's that's just sort of how my curiosity works and, and then develop a new almost area of expertise by the sounds of it because you're very modest so it seems like now you just you know all this about 1564, 65, and... Yeah, but I mean, the real historians... French villages. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I know probably as much about Lemoine as a lot of people. I mean, there's not too many people who know too much about him, but yeah, um, and the, the ones who did are dead. Um, and you have an imaginative life with him, too. Yeah, no, that's very true. You know, I mean, I think, um, and I think to you probably know how this is as a poet. You know, you become obsessed with something and it and it starts sort of taking over... You see it in everything, too. Yeah, and, and, and mostly, I think, for me, in unpleasant sort of brooding ways where you're just constantly revisiting this paragraph or this 
this set of facts. And, it, you know, I mean, I think it's great to disappear into a world, and that's one of the great honors and pleasures being able to write books especially affords you because it gives you time to really think something through. But the flip side of that is then you're just sort of, um, you're stuck with it. So, I mean, at the end of this book and the acknowledgments, I just... Um, talk about how glad I am to be rid of this guy <laughs> that I've just been, you know, obsessed with him for, you know, five years now. And I've just, you know, I've had it, you know, I'm just, I'm really glad to be, to have the book out and to have it be not just something in my um, imagination and not just something in my um, anxieties and, and life, you know, the strange life of the brain, but to have an artifact. And um, I was talking to a friend who's working on a second book recently, I mean, one of my friends from University of Michigan, who I went to grad school with, I was just saying how, you know, this book, I can really appreciate the artifact more than the first book, where everything seemed a little anticlimactic. You know, you'd get this book and something you've dreamed about writing a book and be like, oh, it's just a book, you know, it's not glowing, there's no, you know, there's no choral, choral music in the background, you know, it's just a book. But this book, I did feel like I was really pleased to get the artifact, and um, I don't know if that's just because I'm, I've become a middle-aged person and, and realize that life is short, <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know, it just, it, this, this one, even though I, I don't think this book probably will sell as well as Island of Lost Maps, I mean, I was just really, really happy, I mean, you know, and I just said, okay, and I just feel like, you know, I, I like this book, and I just feel glad to have it um, out of my head and into um, the material world. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful book. I think they did a really nice job with the design. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. There's, there's, um, and there's, there's beautiful. There's even color pictures in here. Too. Yeah, the picture they and, chose. And lovely maps. Yeah. Just, yes. Yeah. No, yeah. They, 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 they really, they really went all out at Random House, and I really, really appreciate it. I love the color. The cover picture is a picture that um, at first looks very pretty. It's these French <laughs> yeah. talking to these. Um, these uh, Native Americans and the way Lamont painted the Native Americans was using this style called mannerism where they look like Greek or Roman gods. They're very buff by today's standards and the, <laughs> the women are all gorgeous. The men are all. And so and there you see in the background some people dancing and uh, beating on gourds, uh, the, the musicians playing. And it all looks like this sort of pastoral scene. And then um, look you a look little at, closer. <laughs> you look stakes. at the back of the picture. There's a series of stakes with human limbs and scalps hanging off of them. Yes, yes. So I, I, I just thought I mean, I didn't select that picture, but I thought it was a great um, picture because I think there's just a lot going on in that picture. Um, uh, and I was glad that they decided to use one of his actual pictures um, in, on the cover. I think, you know, the temptation would be to make it more modern. Uh, but I, but I was really glad they used this. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it could be any other way. Actually, yeah. like entering into this book, you'd have to have it framed with his work. As yeah, well. I, I think so. And or I, what we know of his work to and, be. And they also did a nice touch of sort of this um, floral motif at the edges of. Well, uh, people should come and look at the book. Yes, in come Shaman and look Drum's at the book. window, right? <laughs> Absolutely, or even in the store with your credit card out. That's true. <laughs> Drop on in. <laughs> Drop on by. Well, there's still so many things to talk with you about miles but thank you so much for coming today on the program oh, it's um, been my great pleasure and honor to thanks and, and thanks for coming to living writers first i'm very excited like your first stop on the, the is, book tour this is it this is the <laughs> kickoff <laughs> all right well thank you miles harvey um miles's book is painter in a savage land the strange saga of the first european artist in north america um i'm t hetzel uh, again, thanks to Alex Sergey for engineering. Thanks for listening to Ann Arbor and streaming in Florida, Chicago, Seattle, Bermuda, wherever you are. Until next time. I have been a rover. I have walked alone. Hiked a hundred highways. Never found a home. Still and all I'm happy The reason is, you see Once in a while along the way Love's been good to me There was a girl in Denver 
before the summer storm Oh, her eyes were tender Oh, her arms were warm And she could smile away the thunder Kiss away the rain And even though she's gone away You won't hear me complain I have been a rover I have walked alone Hiked a hundred highways Never found a home Still and all I'm happy The reason is you see Once in a while along the way Love's been good to me There was a girl in Portland Before the winter chill We used to go according Along October Hill And she could laugh away the dark clouds Cry away the snow It seems like only yesterday As down the road I go I've been a rover This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, the 25th of June, 2008. From Pacifica Station KPFK in L.A., I'm Aura Bogado. On today's newscast, the ACLU argues that the government is practicing ideological exclusion. Critics around the world challenge the EU's new immigration enforcement plans. Zimbabwe's main opposition leader leaves the Dutch embassy where he took refuge. And we'll hear from Chile and a historic dictatorship-era human rights trial. Those stories and more after this news. I'm Shannon Young with the